0: Father, this is a holy moment and a holy place to be over your word on your day with your people seeking to see your glory by your grace. So this is a holy moment and we pause to acknowledge it and seek your powerful holy presence in it. Don't leave us to the resources of our flesh, which can accomplish nothing spiritual and nothing eternal. By your Spirit, would you grant me to be faithful to this amazing word that was just read, and would you open, like you did for Lydia, open the hearts of these folks to give heed to what was spoken by the Apostle Paul. And so would you save any Lord here who is without Christ, and would you strengthen the faith of those who know him? I was just sitting back in the study, Lord, reading Psalm 106, which is a record of such terrible failures. Israel forgot God again and again. Israel did not believe the promises again and again. And multiple times you delivered them, and that's been true of everybody in this room because they're breathing right now. You have delivered us with grace and brought us to this moment. Don't let us miss what you have in this word for us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to focus on verse 17, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to Open them again if you've closed them. And as you can see in the title of the message, we're going to focus on a spectacular and scary promise, namely verse 17. It's spectacular because it says that all the children of God inherit from God his inheritance as if God were to die and leave behind his estate. Only he doesn't die, he just gives you the estate. What is God's estate? Everything. He owns everything. So this is a big inheritance. This is a spectacular promise. And it's scary because it says that you will not inherit it without suffering. So those are the two halves of the verse. The spectacular half and the scary half. And I think almost all spectacular things come with scary parts. And so it doesn't surprise me here that that's part of verse 17. However, this is a promise made to the children of God. And I don't know that you are one. One. And you may not know for sure that you are one. In other words, you may be struggling with assurance this morning. Am I a child of God? This promise is made to children of God. It's not made to everybody. Everybody won't inherit the world. So it would be fitting, therefore, that we back up a couple of verses and settle that. Because Paul cares about you in this regard. He really wants you to enjoy this promise. He wants you to know that you are a child of God. I don't think he means for Christians to walk through life uncertain of what's going to happen when they die or in the age to come. Some of you come out of religious traditions where that uncertainty is built in. And this church doesn't believe that and I don't think the Bible teaches that. The Bible wants you to know That this promise is yours so we're going to back up a few verses and talk about what the previous verses mean look at verse 16 the Spirit that is the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of So so when you get to verse 17, you can know if it's yours or not. If you belong to Jesus, verse 9 says, you have the Spirit. If you're a Christian, if you have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Spirit has come to you. He, He dwells in you. Verses 13 and 14. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children, the sons of God. Now, what Paul is doing, I think, is telling us that the Holy Spirit is the key to knowing that you're a child of God, and He does it by bearing witness. He does things in you that enable you to know you're a child of God. So verse 16, He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, which means He he has a way of testifying with our spirits that we can know he has a way of doing that and there are a couple of pointers to how he does it and we just read one of them if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body that is if if when temptation starts to come and your body is inclined to do something sinful you kill it by the spirit so the the spirit is is enabling you to fight temptation For all who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So one of the ways he helps you know you are a child of God is by leading you and the leadership in this verse, these two verses, 13 and 14, is leading you into warfare with your sin. I don't think it's mainly like leading you to the right school or right spouse. That's true, but that's not what's going on. Here, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live for, that shows you're being led, for all who are led by the Spirit. So the leadership of the Spirit is leading you into warfare with all your temptations. And He is the instrument by which you are going to kill those temptations, and thus you know by that work of the Spirit in you, that you're a child of God. All those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So one of the ways the Spirit is testifying, bearing witness, is by His activity in you, leading you into successful warfare with sin. And I don't mean perfect success. I just mean you hate it and you make war on it. The good sign that you're not a Christian is that you make peace with sin. And the good sign that you are a Christian is that you make war on sin and you get some success along the way. Not perfect. Here's another pointer of how he bears witness. Back to verse 15. You have received a spirit of adoption, spirit of sonship, by whom we cry, by this spirit of sonship, we cry, Abba, Father. That's a different kind of testimony. You find yourself... When you have the Holy Spirit in you, one of the ways he manifests himself is he causes there to well up within you a cry, Father, God, you're my Father, Daddy, help me, Abba. Daddy, Father, help me. There's this spirit of of childlike dependence and confidence welling up you that you look to God not any longer as an angry judge, which He was. And now He's not anymore because He's given you His Spirit and He's covered your sins with His Son's blood and, and the Spirit is now rising up and saying, Father, that's not Your doing. If that has happened to you, you didn't make that happen. God is doing that in you. This is the Spirit of God. Most of the people in Boston don't do that. They don't do that. They don't get up in the morning and say, Daddy, I need you. I don't have the resources to live my life. I'm a sinner and I'm weak and I'm imperfect and I'm fragile and I hardly know anything about the universe. You are God and I need you. You're my Father. Very few people in Boston talk that way. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. But if you have the Holy Spirit, that's the way you talk. That's His testimony that you're God's child. You talk to your Father that way. It's a beautiful thing. It should should cause you to feel sweetly assured when you cry like that to your Father in the morning. Let's work on this one for just a minute because this is really significant, this, this dimension of the witness of the Spirit. There's another place in the Apostle Paul where he says something similar. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, listen to what he says. No one... Speaking by the spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. Now this is very similar isn 't it? over here in romans eight fifteen you can't cry out to God as your Father in a humble, dependent childlike way without the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 15 says. This is the spirit bearing witness with your spirit when you say, Father, I need you. And now he's adding over in 1 Corinthians twelve three: you can't say, you are my Lord, except by the Spirit, which means there's another witness going on inside. When you find yourself Not only coming to God as your father, as a dependent child, but coming to Jesus as a sovereign Lord, so that you say things like, you're my Lord, you're my authority, you're my power, I'm your slave, I am owned by you, you may do anything you want with my life. If you talk like that, you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. Nobody else talks like that. The reason you talk like that is because the Holy Spirit is in you. That's what He does. He magnifies Jesus as Lord and He magnifies God as your Father. So so the Spirit is, is working at least these three ways to testify you're a child of God. Way number one, He's leading you to hate sin and make war on it. Way number two, he's humbling you to be like a little child before your father and cry out to God as your all supplying, all need meeting, all caring father. And he's at work in you to look at Jesus and not any longer see a mythological figure or merely historical teacher but say, my Lord and my God, I submit to you. You're everything to me. I'm just your slave. If you're talking like that and making war on sin like that, You should come to verse 17 and say, this is mine. And if you don't, you can't. You have no business coming to verse 17 and saying it's mine. If you haven't got Jesus as your Lord, God as your Father, and you hate your sin. Because you don't have the Holy Spirit, which means you're not united to Christ. And so that may be true of some of you in this room, and that's why you're here is that God wants to pour out His Spirit into your life, and the way that happens is by trusting Jesus. So that's my preparation for verse 17 to, to hopefully help you feel the assurance of your salvation and it might be good just to pause for just a few seconds now and, and just let that sink in so that maybe right now you would just want to yield to the Spirit and, and so that when I get to verse 17 and talk about this spectacular promise, you could enjoy it instead of just hearing the scary part. I'm going to pause and pray. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come into this room in power, As I look around, I see some puzzled faces. Like they don't know, they've never heard about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe the assurance of salvation. Or the sweetness of having you as their Father and not just judge. And the glory of having a strong Lord. And the. Awfulness of sin that we should hate and make war on, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit. Maybe all that's new to some people. Let us pray that they would have grace to understand, and that their hearts would just fly wide open and say, "I want that." And you just give it to them right now by faith in Jesus. As this in His name, Amen. Here we are at verse seventeen. Don't miss that God and Paul, speaking for him, want you to be really, really happy when you read this verse. (laughs) I mean, this is just so… You don't tell people things like you're going to inherit from God what God has in order to make them sad. You don't do that. You… You tell people things like this because you would really like them to realize what they have coming to them so that they are stunned out of their brain with joy over such things. And my prayer before I got here was just help us all, me included, to look at a blue sky like that and a glorious Boston morning like this and see it as a poor, dim, reflection of what he is going to give us someday i mean i really like what's out there <laughs> i mean i i love this day the heavens are telling what the glory of god which means someday we're going to really see it i mean this is good so my my prayer is that we would really love what he promises here, because it will make all the difference in your life. So here we are, verse 17. If children, then heirs. So if you in the first part of this message have settled, yes, the Holy Spirit is in me. I'm making war on my sin. I have God as my Father, Jesus as my Lord, you are a child of God. If children, then you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him so let's talk about the inheritance and then the suffering and if we hear the first part you won't be daunted by the second I hope I can leave you glad Not worried about that second part. Let's take them one at a time. What is the inheritance, more specifically, that we are promised here? We are heirs. Heirs inherit things. So, what are we going to inherit? Let's start in verse 18. Um. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever it is, called glory here, it is so big that it makes the sufferings that we are required to go through, in verse 17, negligible by comparison. That's what verse 18 says contributes to this when if if I succeed in unpacking the inheritance properly you should feel yes I will have to walk through sufferings on the way to this inheritance and that's okay that's okay because Paul says they're not worth comparing they're not worth comparing to what is what is coming So, I have three answers to the question, more specifically, what is the inheritance? Here's number one. When it says you're an heir of God, fellow heir with Christ, it means you're going to inherit the world. I get that from chapter 4, verse 13. It goes like this. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants is that he will inherit the world. And this was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. And I know from Galatians 3, 7, those who are of faith are the offspring of Abraham. So if you are a believer in the Messiah who fulfills Abraham's faith, you are a child of Abraham. And if you're a child of Abraham, you are a fellow heir with Abraham, and a fellow heir with Abraham gets the world. That's one of the meanings of the inheritance in the book of Romans, the world. Why would you get the world? Because God owns the world and you're getting what God owns because you're his heir and his estate is going to become your estate when you come into your fullness in the age to come, in the resurrection. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And those who dwell therein, therefore, since it's his, it will be yours. Psalm 2.8, ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. He's talking to the Son of God here. So the Son of God gets the inheritance of the nations. All the nations will belong to Jesus. And this says you're a fellow heir with Jesus. So you get the nations thrown in. I find 1 Corinthians 3.21-23 some of the most spectacular, almost unbelievable verses in the Bible with regard to your inheritance and mine. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 3.21 All things belong to you. Talking to Christians. All things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death all things present, all things to come, all things belong to you. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So what's the inheritance? Everything. The world is yours. The earth is yours. Everything in it is yours. The nations is yours. All things are yours. Now, what does that mean? I'm not even sure that's good news. Because he included death. Did you hear it? I went by it maybe a little fast. All things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas, or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ. Death? Wait a minute. Not sure I want that. Why, why, did, he, why did he include death in the list of all things? He's trying to make me happy. He's trying to make me feel like I'm rich with God. And, and he includes death as part of my inheritance. I have, a, I have a way of understanding that. Let me commend it to you. You think it through for yourself. If you are told that all things are yours, what good is that? Unless all things will somehow serve your happiness in the long run. All things will serve your happiness not all things will crush you or all things will make you miserable or all things will belittle you or all things will make you numb or no 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 the point in saying you have all things is that they they serve you they make you happy you have if i have a car it's my car it gets me where i want to go it doesn't run over me i mean that's i have a car for you it runs over you that that wouldn't be good at all that this is so obvious but it needs to be said When he says all things are yours, the world is yours, life is yours, death is yours, they're yours to make you glad forever. They serve you, which means death is going to serve me and it will, it will. It's an enemy, wasn't the original design. It brought in as a part of judgment and curse and fall, and now in redemption, it becomes my servant. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Death served the thief on the cross amazingly. Try this, see if this helps make sense out of that. Remember Romans 8? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors. Have you ever tried to figure out what... More than a conqueror is? We all know what a conqueror is. If you have an enemy and you kill him, you're a conqueror. He didn't kill you, you killed him. You had a a war going on between two countries, you defeat them, they don't defeat you, you're a conqueror. What's more than a conqueror? More than a conqueror is when that enemy lying dead in front of you gets up and serves you. Like death who is dead. So, I'm I'm willing to let Paul include it in the list of my inheritance. You get death thrown in as your servant. He's not going to kill you. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Death won't kill you. There won't be a split second when you're out of fellowship with Jesus. Amazing. So, the first thing I want to say about our inheritance is the world and everything in it serves you, makes you happy. That's what you're going to inherit. Second, God himself is your inheritance. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Romans says, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. Not just the things God made and the world, but God himself. We hope in the glory of God. And if you were to think, well, you just said the inheritance is God and now you just read a text that says glory of God. When I say the glory of God, I mean the God of glory, God in His gloriousness, God in His infinite radiance, God in His manifold perfections and beauties which are reflected all over the world because in verse 11 of that same chapter 5, it says, and not only this, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and rejoice in our tribulations, not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, glory of God, tribulations, and God. So, part of our hope, summing up all others, is God. Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the picture of the future in Revelation 21. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? Now, as I give you this verse, keep in mind, in the Old Testament, the Jews knew the inheritance was very largely the land. Right? We have a land. i give you the promised land. And still today the land is very significant. But, when it really came down to it, they said things like Psalm seventy-three twenty-five: whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. They, they did say things like that. God was their final portion. Yes, the land would be great. Yes, it would be nice to have the world and the nations and all things serving me. But if God is not there, if God is not my final portion and satisfaction, I will remain as unsatisfied with the world as I do with that world out there right now. God must not be a, a stranger to you. I think your life right now should be devoted to knowing him and loving him so that when you get your inheritance, it won't be something strange, namely him. He should be our chief desire now and our chief treasure then. Number three. So first answer, what's the inheritance? The world. Second answer, God. Third answer, redeemed and glorified bodies, this, this, bodies, this right here. If we're going to enjoy the world, the new world, which will be a physical world, be a material world. God didn't create the universe to put it out of existence. It will be in existence forever and he created you with material body to live in a material universe he didn't do that to make you an idolater he did that so that you would see and know him in and through material things including your body the body's not an evil thing sexual desires are not evil hunger for food is not evil getting weary at night wanting to go to sleep is not evil these are Things built into the way God made us before there was any sin. And it will be that way after there is no more sin. And if I am therefore to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth in a way that does not commit idolatry and benefits to the full from it, I need a new body. I need new eyes. I need new ears, and not just because I need new eyes because of this, and because I'm going to need hearing aids pretty soon. My wife thinks my hearing's bad. I don't think my hearing's bad. She (laughs) thinks my hearing's bad. I think she just talks too low. (laughs) And such things as those normal decayings of the human are, we've got to get rid of that because we won't be able to enjoy our inheritance if we don't have the capacity to enjoy it. Look at verse 22 and 23 of chapter 8 of Romans. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now in in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'd love to just linger here for a long time with you. What kind of theology of the body and theology of sickness and theology of disability do you have? One of the first five, six sermons I preached when I came to Bethlehem in 1980 was Christ and Cancer, taken from this text, because I wanted, as I looked out on uh, about 300 people over 60, (laughs) maybe over 70, in this old downtown dying church that I had come to, I knew I would do their funerals, and I did a funeral every three weeks for 18 months. And I wanted them to know how I felt about them when I came to their hospital bed. Did I think you wouldn't be here if you had enough faith? Did I think that? You wouldn't lie there so sick if you had faith. Is that my theology? That's absolutely not my theology. Because of verse 23. We groan. We groan. Waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That's normal. Dying is normal. Cancer's normal. I don't mean it's good, it's just normal. Normal Christian life is arthritis, loss of hearing, cancer, and death is normal. And we're waiting, we're longing, we're yearning, we're aching for our new bodies, the redemption of our bodies, and here we groan. And the reason Paul said it the way he said it in verse 23, when he said, not only the creation out there, you know, groaning, but we ourselves even we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. You know why I said it like that? There were already health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. Already they were there, and they were saying, Oh, if you are a child of God, if you have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, then you will not get sick. Your pigs will have eight piglets Every time. And your wife will never miscarry. And you will be a prosperous farmer. And all that crap. Sorry. I slipped every that. This verse is written to undermine that devilish misleading theology. We groan. And Christ breaks into our lives and yes, He can heal and He sometimes does and I pray for healing for people every Sunday. I stand at the front for 45 minutes after the service and lay my hands on people and pray for whatever they need including physical healing. And He does it sometimes. But not always. And Our inheritance is a new body, not our present position. Our inheritance is a new body. That's what verse 23 says. Which means that we'll be given a body that is enough like Jesus' body, Philippians 1, Philippians 3, 20, We await a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. That's going to happen at the second coming. We're going to be raised from the dead, or if we're still alive, we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be conformed to Christ not only in moral conditions, but in physical conditions so that we will run and leap maybe for the first time in our lives. And that body will be enough like Jesus so that we can enjoy the gifts of Jesus the way He enjoys them. When He was here, without any idolatry at all, we will enjoy food. He ate fish after the resurrection. (laughs) He ate fish after the resurrection. It says so in Luke 24. Which means in the resurrection you're going to eat fish. If you don't like fish, pizza. (laughs) I really believe that. And it won't be deadly like it is now. (laughs) It'll be good for you. Everything will be good for you. It's going to be so good. Uh, That's the end of my effort to try to say what the inheritance is. The world, everything, good that's in creation serving you. God himself is the capstone of our inheritance and then the capacity to enjoy him and it with a new body. Now, last question. You get this. You inherit this. Let's read the verse again. If children, then heirs, this is verse 17, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. So here suffering is not possible. It is necessary. Why? Jesus said, Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me, so daily cross-like bearing, and the cross is a deadly instrument of execution and torture. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. All will be persecuted. Hebrews 12.6, The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons first peter four thirteen, to the degree that you share the sufferings of christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may re- rejoice with exultation Which means no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown, no suffering, no inheritance. That's what all those verses and verse 17 of chapter 8 say. But here's a crucial question. What kind of suffering does he have in mind? Provided you suffer with him you will be glorified with Him. That is, you'll be given your new body. You'll have the world. You'll know God intimately. What kind of suffering does he have in mind? Is it only persecution? People seeing that you're a Christian and hurting you because of it. Firing you from your job or mocking you or wanting nothing to do with you imprisoning you? Or or is it broader than that? And car accidents and terrorist bombs and, and cancer. And my answer is it is bigger than persecution because when he unpacks it from verse 17 to 25 he doesn't even mention persecution he just mentions the creation is groaning under its normal brokenness and we are groaning with it waiting for new bodies that's the context of the suffering when he says everybody's got to suffer he he starts talking about the groaning of creation and the desire for it to have a new body so no i don't limit this to persecution I don't think that's the point here. I don't think the point here says you'll go to heaven provided you get persecuted. You might build that case somewhere else. I don't think that's the point here. I think the point here is the only path to glory is suffering because that's what this world gives you. And the question is will you do it well or will you make it uh, will it make you say, you're no longer my Lord, and you're no longer my Father? Because if that's the way you treat your kids, I'm out of here. And if if that's your response to suffering, you don't have the Holy Spirit, and you're not a Christian to say, I'm out of here. I have nothing to do with this Christianity stuff anymore, because if you won't, if you won't heal my dad or heal my wife, or heal me then not interested which means you've just missed everything you've just missed everything I've said why would God make suffering so essential to the inheritance it says to build it right into verse 17 and say you gotta do it <gasps> why why would he You make it so necessary. Provided that you suffer, you will be glorified. And I I think we get a clue in chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, We also exult or rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance or endurance. So there we get a picture. I embrace and rejoice in tribulation of any kind doesn't specify why because tribulation is producing in me endurance endurance of what faith how does that work second corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 paul says we were crushed we were so burden beyond life itself that we despaired of life that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead so here you have the the glorious apostle Paul I mean he's a great man a great saint a a lover of Jesus and he says God brought me to the point of death because he thought I needed to rely on him some more And I just say, if he did that to Paul, I expect it every day. Little things, big things. Little things to make me know, you can't make this on your own. You've got to have Jesus. Big things that are going to make me think, I'm dying. And he said, yes, you're dying. Where will you turn? You, yes, that's the point. Now, I may give you a few more days. Or not. Because I'll raise you from the dead. I'm your God, I'm your inheritance. I'm here now, I'll be here there. Death is not the issue here. Faith is the issue here. Endurance is the issue here. You know what this says? This means, I think think the point of verse 17, the point of chapter 5 verse 3 is, you are so fallen... I am so spring-loaded to self-reliance, so spring-loaded to depend on on my my abilities and my my money and my house and my job and all these things for my contentment and my identity. I'm so spring-loaded to find my satisfaction in the world that he's just constantly got to take them away from me. That's called suffering. He's just constantly got to frustrate me. It frustrate me in marriage and frustrate me in my parenting and frustrate me at church. i got frustrations in all those areas right now in my life that are breaking my heart. Why? I'm your child. You are indeed. I love you so much, John. I will take this away. I will take this away because I know your heart. It's mine, but there's enough sin left there that if I didn't strategically undo your purposes, you would start to think you're quite somebody. You would start to rely on your church. You would start to rely on your wife. You'd start to rely on your, your parenting skills that are so great, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to let you go there. I love you too much. So, I don't want you to begrudge the seminary of suffering. Because you're on your way to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. And I'm going to close with an illustration that has meant so much to me. Saw it, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago. I can't remember when I I did a biography on John Newton. He's the author of Amazing Grace and counselor of William Wilberforce, just, just one of the sweetest Christians that's ever existed. Sweet is the right word for John Newton. And he was a slave trader. And God broke him in half and made him sweet. And I want to be sweet. Nobody would call me sweet. <laughs> so I like John Newton. And, and here's, what he, here's the illustration he gave me, and I, I'll close with it. Suppose a man going to New York I'm just reading what he wrote, okay, this is not a paraphrase, these are his words. Suppose a man going to New York, I don't know why you choose New York, he was British. (laughs) Um, And this is, you know, 150 years ago, so before everything. So this man's in a carriage, not a car. Suppose a man going to New York to take possession of a large estate. And his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. We would. He's going to inherit a million dollars, and he has to walk the last mile. Oh, <laughs> my carriage is broken. My carriage. We would say, "You're an idiot. You've lost touch with reality." And and we laugh. I laugh, and I say, "That's just John Piper every day, almost." Why do you get upset so quickly at my wife? Why am I so? easily discouraged with my kids. Why? What's going on? Don't you realize? You're 66, man. You're going to inherit the world in less than a generation. I don't know. This afternoon, maybe. Or if I live as long as my dad, 20 years from now. I mean, that's short. Get everything. Why are you so upset? Oh, it's such a rebuke to me, and such an encouragement to me so let's just make clear something yes our carriages break down all right God can heal our carriage but sometimes he just lets it break down and makes you walk or 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 ride there in a wheelchair sometimes our kid gets run over by the broken down carriage and dies Sometimes we fall out of the broken carriage and break our neck and are paralyzed like Johnny the rest of our lives, Johnny Erickson taught it. But as you limp there or roll there or are carried to the city of God, I'm pleading with you, I'm praying for you that you not forget, in New York, <laughs> the city of God, That <laughs> analogy, But you know what I mean, in New York, the world is waiting for you, a new body is waiting for you, and God is waiting for you as your Father. And so, be strong. Don't let the sufferings of this life turn you on your Savior or turn you on your Father. Keep yielding to the Spirit's whisperings, Father, Father, Lord. Lord, I hate sin. Let's pray. Father, I plead with you for myself and for these friends here. Open our hearts to see the hope to which we've been called, the greatness of our inheritance, the power at work in those who believe. So that we wouldn 't murmur, John Piye wouldn 't be a murmur when I get home in Minneapolis this afternoon, i wouldn 't murmur if something 's wrong in the house, or shouldn 't murmur if I hear hard news from a child or from the church. God don 't let us murmur and be, betray our inheritance. Make it real to us, Lord. Change our lives. Help us to be the most loving, humble, risk-taking, radical, sacrificial givers of ourselves to others that the world cannot explain. That's this in Jesus' name.